0: Hebrews chapter eight. A couple of things, again, I know it's been mentioned in our announcements uh, already, that um, uh, our missions week starts, again, if you're not actively participating physically in the flesh here, I trust that you are actively participating at home, interceding uh, for us in prayer. Uh, Community Baptist, this is, Honestly, for me, in my eight years of being here at Community, I think this is one of the greatest opportunities that we've had collectively as a church throughout the community. I mean, we have a lot of opportunities set before us, and we don't need to enter into this lightly. And so we need prayer warriors, those watching at home. Um, Please, intercede for Community Baptist Church, those who will be going out doing the frontline ministries. That is a vital part of what we're doing. So uh, all of us, uh, each night as you pillow your head in the mornings when you wake up throughout the day, please take time to pray for one another and for those opportunities for open doors. Uh, again, our camps are at capacity. Praise the Lord. We've um, we're, uh, we, we set a limit of 30. We felt like with the amount of workers we might have, 30 would be about all we could handle. And um, our basketball camp, I think it's probably like 35. We kind of you know, went over a little bit, but uh, uh, our volleyball camp is nearing that number. Uh, our soccer camp is nearing that number. So we're basically at capacity uh, in our camps. And this is wonderful. Um, again, folks throughout the community have been calling and, and wanting to know about these ministries. Uh, that's just one aspect of what we're doing. Um, if, if you are a widow watching at home or uh, here with us today, or widower and need some work around your house, uh, please let me know before you get out of here today because we have a couple of days assigned that we want to come out to your place and do a little bit to help you. Um, We also will be doing work here in the trailer park next door, helping to clean it up and do some yard work. Uh, On that day, we'll probably put out either a phone tree or an email, be checking that. Um, For some of you other men, maybe in the afternoon, you get off work a little early, you can come out with a weed eater, lawn mower, whatever, and help us do some of that uh, in in regards to some of those work projects. Uh, Again, lots of things that will be happening throughout the week. And we desperately ask that you either participate or pray for. Again, right after service, don't rush off. We'll take just a few minutes. If you're participating, you want to participate, even if you didn't sign up, but you think, hey, I I think I might come a day. Meet us up front here, and we want to give you some information and just sort of get get everybody on the same page and up to speed. So with that said, uh, again, we're in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. And um, I know it's been a couple of weeks. Last week, it was definitely providentially ordered that we take a little break. Um, uh, Definitely wrestled with that decision in uh, in hindsight. Don't you always see God's will in hindsight? (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, I can see that clearly now. Great week last week. Praise the Lord for our number of visitors. We've had some great contacts. Uh, We've had follow-up this week. And so continue to pray for those visitors, glad for our visitors that are here this morning, and uh, trust that uh, you will be met with the love of Christ, and if you're seeking a place to call home, uh, we would love to have you be a part of the Community Baptist Church family. There is definitely a place for you here. Uh, But was real thrilled as a pastor um, last week with with what we saw, and I want to say, I don't say this enough to you people, I love you, and I'm proud of you the way you welcome folks in, and the way you showed and displayed the love of Christ. Um, And I appreciate that about this church family. So thank you, thank you for that. It was a a good Sunday last week, Uh, a a little disappointed. My wife and I didn't win the cornhole tournament, but I I got over that about Friday. Um, But congratulations, it was Team Autopilot, which was one of our visitors. Uh, The young man by the name of Kyle, he is a pilot, and he teamed up, of course, The pilot has an eye for these things, I guess. He picked out the best cornhole player in our midst, Mr. Josh Quinn. And uh, so anyway, uh, but uh, it was a good match. So congratulations to Team Autopilot for this year's cornhole championship. Uh, All right, well, let's turn our heart and minds towards uh, the book of Hebrews, and we'll begin our reading. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter again, and then we will pick up about midway through. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point, oh, by the way, this morning I'm reading from the NASB. <gasps> what? Yes, the New American Standard Bible. This is called Pastor Left His Bible at Home. <laughs> so, anyway, um, Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. Man, I love that. Here's the main point. Here's the main point. We have such a high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for, quote, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion sought for a second for finding fault with them he says behold days are coming says the lord when i will effect a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Father, I pray for clarity of thought. I ask that the Holy Spirit would use me today to be a vessel for your honor. Lord, you teach us today. no doubt a difficult subject. I pray that there'd be no confusion, but there would be clarity that you'll give us understanding as we wrestle with the deep truths of Scripture. Lord, may you draw us near as a result of this study. May our hearts be turned to you to seek you more diligently. So, Lord, as we look into your word, may we look upon your face and may you be glorified and honored as you draw us near in this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You recall last time that we were in this book, we spoke of Christ being a better priest. The first section of this study in chapter 8 was twofold. We looked at the first section, verses 1 through 6, how Christ is a better priest. We talked about how he's our high priest, how he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You'll recall how we talked about the importance of his being seated was that that implies the work is done. It's finished. There's no more work to be done. We talked about how in the earthly temple that the high priest would never sit, that he had to stand, and yet Christ, as our great high priest, has seated. The work is complete. We talked about how Jesus ministers in the true heavenly sanctuary. And as you read there in chapter 8, the earthly that was given to Moses and he said, follow these specific instructions because this is a reflection, this is a type, this is a shadow of the earthly, but the true is in the heavenly. And that's where our high priest has ascended. And so again, these earthly things that we find contained in the law the writer of hebrews is making the point these were simply types and shadows to point us to the fulfillment christ is the fulfillment the substance is found in him think about again the whole point of the hebrew writer is to plead with them go away from those elementary things go away from those old things that is, that is earthly, that is, that is not lasting, that is temporary. These were to point you to the fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Jesus ministers in the true heavenly sanctuary. So, as we continue on, if I can get this to work. Oh, hey, look, power. You got to turn it on first. Have that problem at the house with the remotes. No, that's dead batteries kids take them and put them in the Wii all right so we also saw how Christ is a better priest since Jesus ministers in heaven rather than on earth he's obtained a more excellent ministry and so again Christ has that excellent ministry he forever lives to intercede on our behalf if you were here in the Sunday school hour uh, what a great impactful message of how Christ again represents us. He has imputed His righteousness to us and that He lives and intercedes on our behalf. We have an advocate with the Father. Our sins are forgiven. And as we're going to learn here today, the new covenant promises not only our sins forgiven, but a new heart created within us as believers. So, section two. And that's where we find ourselves today. We may not finish this. Let me just tell you, I've got 47 slides, but who's counting? (laughs) But we'll go as far as we can. We'll stop at a good stopping point because I I need to talk to you all afterwards anyway. So, better covenant. We see that Christ is a better priest. We also see that there's a better covenant. Notice if you would again in verses 7 through 13. What do we see? Notice. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So, so what's the problem? The better covenant would not have been needed if the first covenant had been not uh, faultless, right? It had problems. It had flaws. Well, wait a minute. Was it the covenant that had the problems? By the way, a covenant, you know, is an agreement, Right? And we've been learning in Hebrews, talking about the difference when there is a conditional clause or where there's an unconditional clause. The law of Moses was in essence sort of conditional. In other words, you do this, if you're obedient, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then you'll be cursed. The if-then clause. Alright? That's important to understand. Because, if you'll notice here in verse eight we see that the problem is not in the Covenant notice the words for finding fault with what somebody say it loud them so where's the problem is the problem on God's part or is the problem with the Israelites is the problem with the people The problems with the people that's where the fault is that's where the problem is God kept his end of the deal, if you will, right? And again, we could spend time here talking about different types of covenant. We could talk about how in marriage there's this idea of you have ceremonial law, you have civil civil marriage laws, you have contractual or covenant marriages, right? We as believers, we believe in covenant marriage because it's God who's ordained marriage. We don't just go down and get a civil marriage certificate. Now, some of you may have done that, but at the end of the day, recognize this relationship first before this relationship. And we talked about in the Abrahamic covenant how Abraham's asleep and God institutes the agreement. By the way, God ordains all the agreements. There's a word that's used here in our text that we'll see in a little while that that makes it very clear that this is not two equal parties. Don't, don't get that in your mind that there's two equal parties in this agreement. No, 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 no. There's one party that counts, and that's the party of God. That's very clear as we go through this text. God is the one instituting this. It's not the covenant part that broke. It was the people part that broke. All right? So, the better covenant would not have been needed if the first covenant uh, had been faultless there'd be no occasion for a second but there was since God found fault with the people he promised a new covenant when Christ Jesus came into the world and this is the point that the Hebrew writer is making to these folks because they're struggling do we go back to the old system or do we embrace Jesus as their Messiah you remember in the upper room the Last Supper Jesus told his disciples, this is the new covenant, what? In my blood. He was giving them the picture, the understanding of the idea of this new covenant. He was making a promise because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, because he's the bread from heaven. Because, and, and that's why when we take these elements, when we do the Lord's table and we reflect upon what Christ did at Calvary, we are in essence celebrating the new covenant, the new promise that extends to God's people. So Christ has brought in this new covenant. Now the old covenant... Again, when you think about the Mosaic Covenant, you think about some of the things, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. We don't sacrifice animals anymore, right? That doesn't go on anymore. And in fact, as we keep reading, you remember in verse 13, he says, look, the old covenant's becoming obsolete. Guess what happened right after this, shortly after this? Temple's destroyed. Has that system been brought back? Is it continuing today? No, because Jesus said the Old Covenant's passing away. The Hebrew writer is is saying, look, Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 31, this is a quote here in your Hebrews passage. The Hebrew author is quoting the prophet Jeremiah. Let's go over there. Everybody hold your spot here and go over to Jeremiah chapter 31. And let's look in verse 27. Jeremiah 31, verse 27. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beasts as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Now notice verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them. So we see who the adulterer was in that relationship. It wasn't God, it was man. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. Now remember, before the Mosaic law is on, on a stone tablet, cold stone tablet. It's external. But here God is promising a change that He'll put it on the flesh of the heart. It'll become internal, not external. My law within them and on their heart, I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so we see that quote here in Hebrews. From the time that God promised a new covenant, The old became obsolete and was about to disappear. Christ came. As we talked in our Sunday school class as a rescuer. The law was never sufficient to save you, to save me because we're not perfect we could never achieve that standard of perfection but jesus christ was and a lot of people this is where they kind of theologically start to get off track because some people want to say we'll see the he says that the old's obsolete. It's, it's thrown out. It's no good anymore. You, you know, and, and therefore the law is forever gone. Yes. No. Is my answer. No, we don't sacrifice animals anymore. No, we don't follow Levitical civil laws, though there are some in practice in certain societies that are influenced from that. But not in the theocracy sense of the kingdom of God. We don't do these special ceremonial washings, and et cetera, et cetera. The Hebrews writers argued this already in earlier chapters. But we do still adhere to the moral law. The moral law has been in place, I would argue, from the beginning of time to the end of time. And so Christ, when He was on the earth, you may recall, made the statement that He did not come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. See, Jesus Christ was the only one who could fulfill the law, and He did. And because of that, and because of who He is, and because He is our great high priest, He can offer us a new contract, a new covenant that's paid for in His blood. And therefore, it covers it all. He has that right. And so I think it's important as we wrestle through certain theological things that we understand who it is that's offering the new covenant. Now, For the faint at heart, you may want to take a nap. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Well, some of you already have. Um, We're going to compare some covenant theology and dispensational theology. And I know some of you are saying, huh? Let me put it this way. It's like putting on a set of glasses. We went to the eye doctor this week. Man, they will rob you blind. (laughs) It's a little eye joke. Anyway. No, we, we actually did good. We... We bought our stuff at Walmart, but anyway. You put on a set of lenses, you see things a certain way, right? Can I just tell you, both of these theologies are a set of glasses. I'm going to try my best to present this in as unbiased a way as possible, okay? With that said, we all have presuppositions. We all come to the party with our own set of glasses, right? And that influences how you see things. But I believe as honest Bible students, and we should desire to be honest Bible students, (coughs) that sometimes we find ourselves in some tension and quandary and newsflash, it's okay. We don't need to figure it out. Now, that doesn't mean we just brush it off. No, 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 no. We must study to show ourselves approved. So don't be afraid of the tough stuff. But with that said, we are now moving from the shallow end of the pool into the deep end. I hope we have our life vest. So let's talk a little bit about this subject because this subject, like it or not, is front and center in Hebrews chapter 8 because of the new covenant. So let me just kind of give you this idea was the old covenant just to israel the people the nation of israel okay the mosaic law those things in the in the times gone by those surrounding nations right yes gentiles could become a part of that but it was predominantly the chosen people of the old testament was the nation of israel Who are the chosen people in the New Testament? Typically you will hear the chosen people of the New Testament is the church. So the question is, did God finish His business with Israel and now He's dealing with the church and the church only, the Gentiles? Some will say, yeah, Israel's done. Some will say, no. Some will say... They're one and the same. Believing Israel and believing Gentiles are one, the chosen of God, the elect, from the Old Testament through the New Testament. Israel lost, Gentiles lost. There's only one group of people. Always has been, always will be. This is where covenant theology comes into play. Dispensationalism, dispensational theology, we'll talk about this, basically has... uh, there's. You can, I mean, you can go down all kinds of shoots. There's those that argue four, those that argue eight, but predominantly seven dispensations of time where God dealt in certain ministrations with certain people, certain ways. And, and we're going to look at that. But they would say the church and Israel are separate. God's dealing now with the church, but he will once again deal With Israel so with that said here we go covenant theology centers on one overall covenant known as the covenant of grace so just imagine if you will picture if you will for me I should probably use well anyway I won't let's let's picture if you would the beginning of time and the end of time so if we go to the beginning of time and we step out into eternity past Covenant of grace begins, and it goes all the way over, overarching everything. Covenant of grace. Some have called this section prior to the beginning of time, covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. A covenant's agreement. It's this agreement. And so the Godhead made this agreement before the beginning of time, This idea of salvation, the whole plan, the whole works and caboodle in time, eternity past. Does the Bible teach that? Sure it does. Predestination, election, the Bible teaches this. We can't ignore this. So some have called it the covenant of redemption. You may hear that term used a lot more nowadays. This is defined by many as an eternal covenant among the members of the Godhead, including the following elements. So here in the prior to the beginning of time, Here's what was taking place. Remember, this we'll call this CR for short. That's the CR. CR is right there. It's not Crown Royal. It's not, no, no, that's not what it is. Keep that out of your head. And it's not RC Cola if you're dyslexic. Number one, the father chose a people to be his own. Eternity passed. The son was designated with his agreement to, the pay, to pay the penalty of their sin. So God, God the Father chose the people, God, God the Son was designated, He'll go, sent by the Father, to pay the penalty of the sin of those chosen people. The Holy Spirit was designated with His agreement to apply the work of the Son to this chosen people. Chosen people of the Old Testament, chosen people of the New Testament. Everybody with me? Whoop. Well, All right, the covenant of grace is being worked out in history on earth through subordinate covenants, beginning with the covenant of works. So now we've got the beginning of time, Adam and Eve. Adam fell. That period in the Garden of Eden was referred to as the covenant of works. This is where the covenant of works idea began, all right? Because remember, Adam, you got one rule. Don't eat of that one tree. If you don't, you'll live. There was a tree of life, right? Eat of that, eternal life, representation there. So, we have this idea of covenant of works introduced. This contract with man. It culminates in the New Covenant, which fulfills and completes God's work of grace to man on earth. So some say it this way. You're either under the covenant of grace or you're under the covenant of works. It's either based on your doing or based on what's done. The problem is Adam failed. And he was a federal headship. He represented every one of us. So you're either in the old Adam... Or you're in the new Adam who are you in that's going to determine eternity so covenant of works having created man in his own image as a free creature with knowledge righteousness and holiness God entered into covenant with Adam that he might bestow upon him further blessing called variously uh, the uh, uh, Edenic covenant so, there's a covenant made in Eden there, if you will. That's the way the covenant theologians will interpret this. The covenant of nature, the covenant of life, or preferably the covenant of works, which is, so if you hear these terms thrown around, just know this is what they're talking about. The pact consisted of number one, a promise of eternal life upon the condition of perfect obedience throughout a probationary period, number two, the threat of death upon disobedience. And number three, the sacrament of the tree of life, or in addition, the sacraments of paradise, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These are the terms of the covenant of works, covenant theologians. Now, by the way, guys, I know I'm painting this picture with broad strokes. If some of you are in here and you're a covenant theologian and I misrepresent something, please reason with me. Because my job is to try to do my best to represent as honest as possible. If you're here and you're dispensationalists in your theology and I misrepresent something, please come and reason with me uh, with your scriptures, not your experiences. And my, I want to represent this as honest and as fair as possible. So these are broad strokes because I realize there's a lot of other camps and a lot of other details. This is to be the big picture overview. Okay? All right. So covenant of works. Although the term covenant is not mentioned in the first chapters of Genesis, it is held that all the elements of a covenant are present, even though the promise of eternal life is there by implication only. Before the fall, Adam was perfect, but could still have sinned. Had he retained his perfection throughout the probationary period, he would have been confirmed in righteousness and been unable to sin. That's the idea in covenant theology, in the covenant of works portion. This covenant has been made by God with mankind. In it, he offers life and salvation through Christ to all. This is the covenant of grace now. We're at the covenant of grace. So you've got covenant of redemption, eternity past, covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, um, and the covenant of grace This covenant's been made by God with mankind. In it, he offers life and salvation through Christ to all who believe, inasmuch as none can believe without the special grace of God. It is more exact to say that the covenant of grace is made by God with believers or the elect. Okay, This covenant of grace is made with God's chosen people. Jesus said that all those whom the Father had given him would come to him and that those who would come to him would surely be accepted so this is one of the scriptures they'll argue that in eternity past the covenant of redemption was being laid out and that God's chosen people Old Testament New Testament that God would give them the grace so that they could be saved through the same means through Christ at the cross who split time in half if you will And that all those whom the Father has given, they would come and they'd be accepted. Herein is seen the close relation between the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption with the former resting on the latter. From eternity, the Father has given a people to the Son. To them was given the promised Holy Spirit so that they might live in fellowship with God. Covenant of grace. Christ is the mediator of the covenant of grace inasmuch as he has borne the guilt of sinners and restored them to a saving relationship to God. Hebrews 8, 6, 9, 15, 12, He's a mediator, not only in the sense of arbitrator, although that is, in, in the, is the sense in which the word is used in 1 Timothy 2, 5, but in the sense of having fulfilled all the conditions necessary for procuring eternal salvation for his people. So the overview of covenant theology again, you've got that overarching, but it breaks down into little subcategories, if you will. The covenants included the Adamic uh, covenant, all right, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. And you'll see these in Scripture. I mean, these you know, dispensationalists, we you know, those oh, I just gave my hand in. They uh, they they see this too. But a little different. How you read your Bible. All right. Whoop, let me go back. Ah. Covenant theology does not see each covenant as separate and distinct. That's important to understand. Whereas to dispensationalists, may. Covenant theology does not see each covenant as separate and distinct. Instead, each covenant builds on the previous ones, including aspects of the previous ones, including aspects of the previous covenants and culminating in the new covenant. And so they would say all of these, Abrahamic, Davidic, all these other covenants that you see in the Old Testament culminate in the new covenant because Christ fulfills it all. All right. Let me clear up some misconception because a lot of times covenant theologians um, We talk about Reformed theologians and you'll hear this term replacement theology. Oh, those guys believe replacement theology. They believe the church replaced Israel. And God's done with Israel, the church replaced them. I used to kind of teach and preach that too. I don't think that's fair. This top one is the false accusation. That you got Israel and then the church replaced them after Christ come, the new covenant. There's no such thing as replacement theology. That's the big mistake um, reformers would say. Critics of historic reformed theology misrepresent their position by asserting the church has replaced Israel. So this top illustration illustrates the errant view ascribed to reformed or covenant theologians. So don't do that. Don't do that. So what is the mainstream Reformed or covenant view? They hold that there is one people of God. This singular people of God is comprised of people from both Jewish and Gentile descent. The common factor is that they are saved by grace through faith. Here's an illustration of that that properly depicts the biblical position held by a vast majority of Reformed thinkers. You've got national Israel in the Old Testament, national Israel who's lost. Think about it. Even Jesus confronted these people. Oh, well, if you were of your father Abraham, you do the works of Abraham. You're not of your father Abraham, you're of your father the devil. So just because they were in the lineage didn't mean they were true believers. So they were Israel, national Israel who's lost. There is, believing Israel, those who are God's people who were being saved. Who would be saved at the coming of the Messiah. In the New Testament, we have believing Gentiles, but you've also got unbelieving Gentiles who are lost. And I would say that even applies within the church. Just because somebody sits on a pew doesn't mean they're a believer. Right? Just because they're quote-unquote, I'm part of the church, doesn't mean, like, national Israel, that they are of their father Abraham so you've got believing Gentiles believing Israel Old Testament New Testament they would say it doesn't matter that's God's chosen people that's God's elect that's the ones who are the one group of people not two separates so they would say that's the correct representation of reformed theology or covenant theology all right so i'm just about done i'm gonna give you some highlight points on dispensationalism and we're gonna wrap it up and then we'll look a little closer at why this is important for you to know why does this matter dispensational theology looks on the world and history of mankind as a household over which God is superintending the outworking of His will. The outworking of His purpose and will can be seen by noting the various periods or stages of different economies whereby God deals with His work in mankind in particular. These various stages or economies or administrations are called dispensations. A dispensation is a way of ordering things, an administration, a system, or a management in theology. A dispensation is the divine administration of a period of time. Each dispensation is a divinely appointed age. Dispensationalism is a theological system that recognizes these ages ordained by God to order the affairs of the world. So, it has two primary distinctives, dispensationalism. Here they are. Number one, a consistently literal interpretation of Scripture, especially Bible prophecy. Okay? This is one of the reasons why it's important. Because if you hold to covenant theology, or you hold to dispensational theology, guess what's going to happen? It's like on this shirt. If I start off on the wrong button, and I get to the end... Whoops... I'm out of whack. If you don't think this is important, by the way, whether you're covenant, whether you're dispensational or covenant theology, whichever you follow, will affect how you see the end times being played out. If you're looking through the set of lenses, it will affect how you view the end times. So, number two, a view of the uniqueness of Israel, this is what dispensationalism says, a view of the uniqueness of Israel as separate from the church in God's program, classical dispensationalism identifies seven dispensations in God's plan for humanity. So here's what dispensationalists say. No, 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 no. Israel and the church are not one and the same. They're two distinct people. They're two distinct groups. Those are probably bad terms. I like what Greg Kuchel says, they're two separate vehicles. They have a differing function, differing purpose. Some would say, just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one, but they serve in different function and different purpose, some have embraced that idea that Israel has a different purpose in God's economy, the church has a different purpose in God's economy, but they're one in that they are God's chosen. So, here's the seven dispensations, and here's the scripture that a dispensationalist will point to. Does my pointer work here? Yeah. So, you'll see the different scriptures. This is the overview. Innocence, the beginning. When Adam was perfect, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, 7, that was a dispensation of time. God dealt differently then than he does now, right? You, you don't have some tree out here you can eat and give you eternal life, right? So, so they would say, hey, look, that was for that time. That's a, that's, that dispensation's closed. That door is shut. Then he moved into conscience. That's from Genesis 3, 8 to, to um, 8, 22, and so when you read through that section of Scripture, you see how God dealt with His people in that time, but that has changed. Then it moved to human government. And you see the whole Tower of Babel concept, right? And then you see the, the promise, Genesis 12:1 through Exodus nineteen twenty five. And so there's a different stage there in how God deals with people. You think about how when Noah and the flood came and that ended, and you think about those things. You think about the law then with Moses. On Mount Sinai giving of the law that old covenant and how things operated under law now you come to a time of grace the dispensationalist says the church age the times of the Gentiles you are living under grace you're not under law you're not under promise you're not under human government you're not under conscience you're not under innocence you're living in the dispensation of grace and that's going to come to a close And when that comes to the close, most dispensationalists, in fact, all dispensationalists would say that, uh, that, of course, I don't want to say that all because I'm sure there's some fragment out there that's creating their own little branch. Um, But that that grace period will end with the rapture of the church. Then will come the seven years of tribulation period on earth where God begins to turn his attention back to Israel. And that will bring national repentance to Israel which will then bring you to the millennial kingdom where Christ will return with His church in the air and those dead in Christ will rise. Those who survived the tribulation period, the revived national Israel who now sees their Messiah and whom they have pierced and whom they have crucified, they will turn nationally their hearts to Him and that will usher in paradise lost, will become paradise restored. A thousand years on earth of the lion laying with the lamb. taking Kids taking up a snake and it won't bite them. This is scripture. In other words, peace on earth again. And national Israel will be the leader of the nations. And you and I will rule and reign with Christ on his throne. Remember we talked about that. To those who, who overcome, he gets the right to sit with him on the throne. Some of you will be uh, ruler of LaGrange. You'll zip from here to there. Well, oh, got to go back to Israel. Pew, I'm there. They're doing good out there, Jesus. New baby born out there. Good. He'll live to be a thousand years old. The millennial kingdom. That's a dispensation. So here's the dispensational chart. I know you can't see it, but it talks about the innocent dispensation. The duration was about 33 years estimated responsibility to do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the failure was man ate from the forbidden tree what was the judgment they were banished from Eden and entropy and death was instituted so then you began the conscience period which lasted about 1600 years do good blood animal sacrifices they failed man did wickedness and violence and that's why he God destroyed the earth with the flood because there was nothing but wickedness and violence in the heart of man the worldwide flood was the judgment every dispensation always ends with a judgment remember that then civil government 429 years disperse and multiply Tower of Babel be fruitful and multiply what do they do build a city and build a tower they disobeyed God they rebelled so man settled in the plain of Shinar to build a tower what was the judgment dispersed by confounding man's language and that's why we have all the various languages in the world today. That's why you have differing races today. Don't you dare be a racist. We come from Adam and Eve. We are one in blood. God's people better not have any racism in them. If we do, we need to take it to the cross and lay it at the foot of Calvary. We are one people. Promise. 430 years, dwell in Canaan. This dispensation zeroes in on the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The failure, they moved to Egypt. What was the judgment? Egyptian bondage. So then you've got the, the law. 1,500 plus years, keep and do the law of Moses. Israel broke the law. The judgment, Christ crucified. Worldwide dispersion of Israel. That was the judgment. The temple's destroyed. When the writer of Hebrews is writing this, they are still practicing the system and so that's why the, the the writer of Hebrews talks about that this is coming to a close and sure enough shortly thereafter destroyed Israel fell, Jerusalem fell, 70 AD so then you got grace that's about 2,000 years plus right now preach salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that is the church's responsibility What's the failure? The failure of our dispensation, dispensationalists would argue, is that we teach false doctrine. Apostasy begins to creep into the church. And look around today, guys, people don't care about doctrine. They want to set up people to tickle their ears. They're going to let you do your sin and have fun in it, and they're not going to confront it, and they're going to tickle your ears. And God says that false doctrine and apostasy abounds, and that will bring the seven years of God's wrath to the earth. Now, the true church, according to dispensations, will be taken out. The judgment seven years of God's wrath then you have the kingdom a thousand years reign the responsibility is trust and obey King Jesus the failure will be at the end of the thousand years Satan will be released for a last-minute rebellion and that is those people who were born in the millennial kingdom will have the opportunity to accept King Jesus who's been a perfect ruler on the earth at the head of nation of Israel as the Davidic Covenant asked and said would happen he fulfills that They will rebel against him because Satan is loose and he will tempt those people born in the millennial kingdom to turn against the perfect king of kings. And Jesus is snuffed out the the rebellion and then you enter into eternal uh, new heaven, new earth. Hell's cast into the lake of fire. Those whose names are written in, that's where you have the separating of the the goats and the sheep and, and that final judgment. Satan and the lost of all ages are cast into the lake of fire. That is the final judgment. That's dispensationalism. Dispensationalists hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible as the best hermeneutic. The literal interpretation gives each word the meaning it would commonly have in everyday usage. Allowances are made for symbols, figures of speech, and types of course. It is understood that even symbols and figurative sayings have literal meanings behind them. So, for example, when the Bible speaks of a thousand years in Revelation 20, Dispensationalists interpret it as a literal period of a thousand years. The dispensation of the kingdom, since there is no compelling reason to interpret it otherwise. Covenant theologians sometimes will read symbolic language in certain aspects. Now we do too when the text calls for it. This is why, I want to be fair, on both sides of the aisle, context, context, context but our lenses will help us in that interpretation. Hermeneutics is the science of studying scripture, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, I'm gonna stop right here because we're gonna get into why is literalism. No, let me read these two things and then we're done. There are at least two reasons why literalism is the best way to view scripture. First, philosophically, the purpose of language itself requires that we interpret words literally. Language was given by God for the purpose of being able to communicate. Words are vessels of meaning. The second reason is biblical. Every prophecy about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament was fulfilled literally. Jesus' birth, ministry, death, and resurrection all occurred exactly as the Old Testament predicted. The prophecies were literal. There is no non-literal fulfillment of Messianic prophecies in the New Testament this argues strongly for the literal method if a literal interpretation is not used in studying the scriptures there is no objective standard by which to understand the bible each person would be able to interpret the bible as he saw fit biblical interpretation would devolve into what does this passage say to me you know i don't care what the passage says to you what you think it says to you i want to know what the author said what was his intent Sadly, this is already the case in much of what is called Bible study today. So we will end there, and then we will continue on. And what we'll do next is we'll begin a back and forth on certain subjects. How does covenant theology view Israel? How does dispensationalism view Israel? How does covenant theology view the church? How does dispensationalism view the church? How does it view the end time? Both scenarios. How do does, how does both scenarios view the millennial kingdom? Now, why is that important? You are entrusted with the truth of God's Word. I am entrusted with the truth of God's Word. Eternity's at stake. Men and women's souls around us are at stake. This is the very word that gives you in our life. Why would we not desire to know the truth of it? I'll say this, and this is what I want to leave you with. Whether you're covenant theologian, reformed theologian, dispensationalism, the main and the plane is the same. We all believe that the death of Burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. It's the good news, how you and I are saved. That it's only through the person of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. That the grace of God is extended to the people through the person of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to heaven but by Him. We agree with that. Faith in Christ... faith alone, Christ alone, word of God alone. I mean we we in essence agree on these things, guys. So we shouldn't divide, and there's a division that happens too often in these areas. Whether you're looking at calvinism, arminianism, so many topics under Christianity divide us. Stay on the main and plain. Vigorously debate Know which glasses you're going to wear. Believe what you believe, why you believe it, and know how to defend it. Because it's 1 Peter 3, 15. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. But do it with gentleness, meekness, respect. And be thankful that we're brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus because of the shed blood and because of the new covenant he offers us. Father, thank you. We will begin to, uh, Lord willing, unpack some more of then how does this apply in regards to the new covenant how does this reply in the difference between Israel and the church and so Lord give us wisdom as we go through this because it is important I realize for a lot of folks today it may be in a little head heavy a little fast a little drink from the fire hose but Lord I pray let us retain truth as we go through this help us to focus on that which is of importance not that this isn't I mean it, it all is because we have a responsibility Um, we are ministers of the gospel and we live in a day of great apostasy help us lord to be light bearers of truth thank you for this time and your word thank you for those that are here today be with us as we meet and discuss tonight in our small group may you receive glory and honor in jesus name amen